Welcome to Studio Tulsa. I'm John Schumann with Medical Monday. Global warming is an accepted threat to our climate and our planet. It seems like such an overwhelming problem, people can often feel paralyzed about actions we can take to improve our lot and that of our communities. What about food sources? Did you know that agricultural production contributes a quarter of all greenhouse gases? My guest today, Mary Purdy, calls herself an integrative eco-dietitian. As a registered dietitian, she counsels people on their individual food needs and disease states to try to optimize their health. But she goes further, encouraging both patients, students, community members, and companies to advocate for systemic change to lessen our production of greenhouse gases, lower our use of single-use plastics, and to support local and sustainable food production that's regenerative to both our health and the earth. Mary Purdy is the host of the Good Clean Nutrition podcast and a registered dietitian, public speaker, teacher, and consultant. You can see many of her talks and podcasts at her self-titled website, marypurdy.co. She brings energy, dynamism, and humor to wonderful educational material. Eco-dietitian Mary Purdy is my guest today on Studio Tulsa Medical Monday. Mary Purdy, welcome to Medical Monday. I'd love to start by having you just tell us what you mean by an eco-dietitian. Thanks, John. Uh, first of all, it's great to be here. And eco-dietitian, yeah, I think this is a term that not many people are familiar with. It's not like it's something out there as in a job description. It's something that I created on my own accord. And essentially, you know, when we think of the word eco, we're thinking of the word environment. And from my perspective as an eco-dietitian, I feel like the health of the environment is inextricably connected to the health of human beings. And so when I think of food, when I think of diet, I also have to consider the environment and specifically I have to consider the climate. So I'll try and give like a 30 foot view of, of what this means for me. I mean, number one, climate change, um, the climate crisis is affecting health. As a dietitian, I care about health. Number two, climate change affects the environment. And when the environment is compromised, that affects human health. And climate change, number three, is also threatening our food security. And as somebody who is working in the food system, I'm concerned about that. And if we flip that whole thing on its head, the food system, the food and agricultural system specifically, is actually responsible for a third of global greenhouse gases, which contribute to climate change and numerous points of environmental degradation, which once again are playing a role in human health outcomes. And we happen to be producing food that very often is uh, not terrifically healthy for human beings. So there's this wonderful intersection happening between health, environment, climate, uh, food systems, and that is where I, I hang my, my hat um, on a day-to-day -day basis. Something you mentioned I wanted to highlight there, that uh, up to a third of our greenhouse gases come from the agricultural system, say specifically in the United States, or is that worldwide? That is worldwide, but but uh, you know it, it kind of depends on which paper you've read and who wrote that paper and what year they wrote it. But we can safely say that anywhere between 25% to 37% of greenhouse gases comes from our global food and agricultural system. And I think what we have to recognize is when we just say, oh, is that, is that from the U.S.? Well, a lot of people don't know that the food system is not just happening in the U.S. We have a global food system. So we may be eating uh, something here in the United States, but that food very often has been grown in a completely different country and then shipped over here or shipped back there, packaged and processed, and then shipped back over to the United States. So, um, yes, it is it is a pretty big contributing factor to global greenhouse gas emissions. And that's that's not just carbon, right? That's not just transportation. That's things like methane, gas, and nitrous oxide, which I think many people aren't always as familiar with and uh, and where they come from. Where do they come from? Methane, I think, often I think people I've read talk about cows or cattle. 
Uh, so like gas from the animals themselves. But are there other sources as well? There sure are. Thank you for asking. Um, so yes, we've got some enteric fermentation, that is aka burps, John, um, from <laughs> the cattle industry. Uh -huh. But it is more than that. Um, methane also comes from food waste. So in fact, um, I think that the statistic is something like a third of methane gas emissions come from food waste, and that's food that wastes in landfill. And then the third big source of methane is rice. So when rice is created or produced, they are using tons and tons of water. It's one of the you know really water intensive crops, and the water, um, the process of that of growing that that rice with that much water also releases methane gas. So there's several different sources of it. I did not know that about rice. Uh, nor I know it's disappointing. It's it's a it's a, it's because of the scale at which it is produced. You know, it's not just like it doesn't this doesn't mean never have rice again. But at the scale at which we produce rice, it's one of the major crops that we're producing, along with like corn and wheat and soy. Uh, but the mass scale on which it's produced is being produced means that there's a, a larger amount of methane gas that's emitted as a as a result. Okay, and you mentioned nitrous oxide. Where does that come from in food yes. sourcing? This is not from your dentist office, sometimes people get that confused, <laughs> right. or nitric oxide, which is a beneficial um, component of blood, uh, a vasodilator of our blood, um, blood, blood vessels, um, which helps to you know reduce our our, uh, our blood pressure and, and give us good blood flow. So not nitric oxide, but nitrous oxide, which comes from fertilizer, from synthetic fertilizer, which we know is uh, a mainstay in how we are growing and producing food. And nitrous oxide also comes from a little something special called manure lagoons, also from the livestock industry. This is massive, massive piles of poop coming from hogs and, and cows um, that are basically kept in these massive lagoons, not a place where you want to spend a lot of time. And uh, they emit these uh, this nitrous, nitrous oxide gas. Wow. And so I guess I'm hearing a theme here that like animal-based agriculture is somewhat of a negative with regard to climate. And I guess I was wondering if you could quantify that or is the implicit or maybe even explicit message that we need to steer ourselves away from animal-based agriculture and eating? Because we're definitely, I would say, a meat-eating culture, at least here in the United States and other parts of the world for sure. Yeah, I mean, I think this is a systemic issue, right? Because sometimes it, it, this can be a bone of contention for people talking about their own personal diets. There's a lot of emotion attached to what people eat, what they feel like is accessible to them, what is affordable, what is familiar, what is cultural and culturally relevant. But yes, in general, we are producing far greater amounts of uh, meat, and that comes from uh, both cows and hogs and chickens than we are actually recommending in our own dietary guidelines. So there's a real discordance here. There's a real incongruity when we think about what is beneficial for health, what's being recommended, and what we're actually producing. So if we're following those guidelines for what we know to be most beneficial for the population at large, and I do say the population at large, speaking in general terms, we absolutely need to reduce the amount of, of meat that is being uh, both produced and consumed and served. Okay, and so... I know right now uh, you are a registered dietitian and I think used to work individually with clients and aren't doing that particularly now, but when you had clients or patients whom you were making dietary recommendations to, was that part of the recommendation or calculus in terms of eating less meat or how did you, how did you frame those kinds of uh, concepts? And obviously you would individually probably tailor dietary recommendations to various health conditions, I suppose. 
Absolutely, I did. And when I was in clinical practice, and I was in clinical practice for about 12 or 13 years, I still dabble in and I've got a foot or a toe in there every so often, whether it's a, a personal or, or, or private session with somebody or kind of an informal friend or family member. But when I was in practice, it wasn't as easy to speak about dietary suggestions and interventions from a sustainability point of view as it perhaps is in larger groups or group settings, because very often people are, were coming to me with a specific health issue. I've got a, I've got a, you know, chronic disease. I've got um, an eating disorder. I'm dealing with cancer and very often sustainability may not be top of mind for them. But when there was an opportunity to have that conversation with somebody and very often, you know, we're learning more and more, the public consumers are concerned about climate change. They want to understand how their dietary choices might be affecting the environment, might be affecting the climate. What can they be doing? How can they be actively involved? So they're actually looking to people like ourselves who are in private practice or who are working in the health profession to give guidance on food that is both healthy for people, uh, for their health, but also healthy for the planet. So what I would do is I would often say it indirectly, like, hey, just so you know, I'd love to get you eating some more beans. Um, let's work together on how we can make that happen. They're rich in fiber, which is good to be helpful for that high cholesterol. They're really high in potassium, which can be helpful for your blood pressure. Oh, and by the way, they also happen to be really great for the environment, if that matters to you. So how can we get some more beans into your diet, right? So it, it just becomes part of the conversation as opposed to, oh, by the way, you need to stop eating so much meat because you're killing the environment. Like that, that approach pretty much never works. But if you make it something positive, if it becomes part of the bigger picture, the whole holistic view of what are we doing to help improve your health, uh, you know, accept who you are, where you are, bring in foods that are familiar to you that don't feel outlandish or not uh, inclusive of your own cultural uh, connections, and also perhaps invite some, some eco-friendly eating into the mix. Well, that definitely is a, a much more palatable message. I mean, it sounds very uh, much more doable and much more uh, accommodative and friendly, sort of, uh, how can we do this together and get the sort of the win-win of personal and environmental benefit. And Mary, um, I was going to see if we could unpack some of the principles. And, and I should say that your website is replete with uh, many of your podcast links as well as videos. The videos are great, highly entertaining, and very informative. So these principles came from an Ignite Seattle talk. You are based in the greater Seattle area. And um, we talked a little bit about this, but eating more plants or plant-based protein. So um, and we talked a little bit about making that message, uh, you know, palatable, pardon the pun. But so you don't tell folks what, what to take away from their diet as much as you tell them to add things. Do you want to uh, explore that a little bit for us? Yeah, I think when we talk about food, it can be quite emotional. People get a little nervous. You know, I've had people come into my office and say, you're not taking away my coffee. You're not taking away my chocolate. You're not taking away my bacon. And I get that. I really understand how connected we are to the foods that we have been eating for maybe decades, right? So for me, a really terrific and empowering approach is about adding in. So most people are not getting enough plant foods in their diet. And I'm not talking just about vegetarian sources of protein, but I'm also just talking about fruits and vegetables, herbs, spices, nuts, seeds, all of that. Uh, so when we start having those conversations, my goal is to say, hey, let's find ways that we can get more beans in your diet. Let's see how we can increase the amount of leafy greens. Hey, let's invite some more of maybe perhaps some, some new seeds or nuts or, or, or herbs or spices. Like how can we increase and, and create better diversity in your diet? Because that, number one, is going to be a little bit more exciting. It's going to be more palatable, as you said. And diversity 
we know is associated with a greater spectrum and abundance of nutrients and micronutrients and phytochemicals or plants, these protective plant compounds that are found in fruits and vegetables and herbs and spices and things like that, that um, that support health. So it's it, it really just is a win-win situation to get people excited about their diet and expanding upon it, not feeling restricted or deprived, and also having many, many health benefits, both to them and to the environment. Plants use a lot fewer resources, that's water, that's energy, that's fuel, all of the above. And um, they also happen to be beneficial for the soil. So when we focus on encouraging more plant-based foods, uh, that is also just helpful for the environment at large. Um, there's another tip here that I thought was interesting. And actually, I talked to um, a local food sustainability expert a, a while ago, uh, and she taught me about gleaning, which is sort of the harvesting of fruits or vegetables that are left behind in agriculture that don't quite make it to market. But your tip here is buy funny-looking fruits and veggies and tell us why we want to do that, but maybe more importantly, how to do that, because I think the grocery stores we often shop at won't even stock those funny-looking fruits or vegetables most often, it seems. That is so true. Yeah, we, we want to buy these funny-looking fruits and vegetables because we waste almost 40% of the food that's produced. Um, that's in the United States, but also globally. We, we lose and waste a ton of food. And if we're thinking about both environment and climate, food waste contributes to about 8% of global greenhouse gases. And, you know, again, that number may vary from place to place. So anywhere between 4% to 8% of global greenhouse gases. Anyone, can anyone remember what global greenhouse gas that is? It's methane. You've got <laughs> it. <laughs> and it also is not just a global greenhouse gas emitter uh, food waste, but it also is a leading cause of fresh water contamination. So this has health impacts to communities who may be living in places where water has been contaminated. So how does gleaning or how does buying funny looking fruits and vegetables help? Very often those foods, you're right, don't make it to market because there is a standard of the perfect apple, the perfect banana, the perfect eggplant, and God forbid anything looks less than perfectly round or has dents in it. But when we can advocate for that, whether it's visiting a local farmer's market, if we have access to that, or not being afraid to grow our own food and have a funny looking carrot come out of the ground that doesn't look like the baby carrot bag that we often uh, <laughs> gravitate to in Trader Joe's or wherever someone might shop, that continues to help reduce the amount of food waste that is out there. And um, the more we can do that, and we can advocate too. I mean, this is not just about our personal choices, John, as I think you probably know, you know, we are way beyond just buying one funny looking carrot or having a veggie burger once a week, like we're way beyond that. So this is often about advocacy and systemic change. If you are somebody who shops regularly at a, at a, at a store, a grocery store, you can say, hey, I'm really looking for foods that maybe aren't as perfect. I'm really concerned about food waste. Do you have anything that might fit that bill? There are very often avocados that are looking maybe a little less perfect at there, and they very often will go to waste, but we can buy them. So interesting. And so um, one thing I wanted to take a sidebar here is on is on composting. So I get, I get a lot of questions about that. Composting is great for, in a way, like recycling food waste, but we don't really get the bargain that we're looking for in terms of methane because, right, it, it, it also contributes to the methane issue or does it not? Not if it's done correctly. And I think that's a really important question. So thank you for asking it. I and mean, if you put food into a garbage, that food 
is going to rot and emit methane. If it's, it'll just go to the landfill. Conditions for composting are very specific. I'm not a compost expert, but there has to be a certain temperature level at which that food is allowed to rot and then become organic matter, right? It will break down, but it only does that under certain conditions. So if there's a composting facility, that's where you want your leftovers or, or rotting fruit or vegetables to wind up as opposed to in a garbage can. And the other thing about composting is that it is fantastic and I'm so grateful that it's out there and there are major composters and compost is a fantastic way to, to bring health back into the soil if you are somebody who gardens or can get the compost to a gardener. However, we have to consider that even if food is composted, all of the resources that went to grow that food, produce that food, transport that food, store that food, produce it, package it, process it, whatever it, whatever we we did with it, that whole food supply chain, all of that still happened. All of the resources that went into that still went into it. So the, the goal is to prevent the food from even needing to be composted to begin with. So let's start with buying less, producing less, uh, being more efficient when we uh, pick foods. Uh, and, and again, as I mentioned, choosing to to eat foods that maybe aren't as perfect, gleaning things, whether that's from your your neighbor's yard with probably hopefully telling them um, that you're gleaning <laughs> their 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 leftover apples. And then being careful in our fridges, right? We very often, and I myself include am included in this, we forget about that cheese that's in the back of the fridge, or there's a funky pepper that we forgot about that's in the bottom drawer that's becoming a science experiment. Being aware of that can also be really, really helpful in reducing our own footprint as it relates to to food waste. Okay, those, those are excellent points. Another one that might be a little more straightforward is use reusable containers. Um, this seems fairly self-explanatory, but tell us how we can think about this in perhaps different ways. Yes, I would love to see more awareness on this because I think we have become so culturally used to you go to the store, you grab something that's in plastic, or you go get bubble tea, it's in plastic, you go to get a cup of coffee or water water bottle, it's in plastic, you don't think about it, it gets thrown away. The production of plastic actually produces greenhouse gases. The incineration of plastic produces greenhouse gases. The production of the plastic is very often polluting uh, to communities who are very often in lower socioeconomic um background communities, marginalized communities. And so they are suffering from the air pollution that is produced from these factories. And then we have this massive amount of plastic waste that does not go anywhere. And that builds up in our environment, affects the health of the soil. These are these nanoplastics or these microplastics, these microscopic parts of plastics, which we're finding in our own bloodstreams and which we're understanding have implications as it relates to immune function or lack of immune function, um, endocrine disruption. That's our, our hormonal uh, system in our body, both reproductive, but also as it relates to our, our insulin, um, which is related to our blood sugar levels. So there's so many health implications. And so th that's, a, that's a long way of saying, let's number one, get plastic out of our supply. And let's take the onus off of the consumer. Because it is not just about saying to us, hey, why don't you stop using so much plastic? Or why don't you recycle your plastic? I'd say, let's go to the source. Let's ask these major plastic producers and I'll name a few, um, if you don't mind, um, because some of the biggest plastic producers are the foods that we often are seeing in our grocery stores, PepsiCo, Nestle, um, Coca-Cola, are some of the biggest plastic producers. They need to be held accountable. They need to stop producing plastic in, to begin with. 
in the meantime, we as consumers, well, by golly, we've got this plastic in our system. Let's do everything we can. You know, we reuse our yogurt containers all the time. We use our plastic uh, jars until obviously if they start to become degraded, we don't want that to be part of our, our, our eating experience. But any opportunity we have to reuse, to buy less of, and then to recycle when possible um, is absolutely imperative to getting plastic out of our food supply and our environment as well. Okay, yeah, it's a daunting task because there really is so much single-use plastic out there. I find that incredibly so much. depressing myself. You're listening to Studio Tulsa. It's Medical Monday. I'm John Schumann, and my guest today is integrative eco-dietitian Mary Purdy, who is host of the Good Clean Nutrition Podcast. You can find anywhere you, you find podcasts. You can learn more about Mary at her website, marypurdy.co. And um, we're talking about some of the principles of eco-nutrition, eco-dietism, if you will. Um, and so there's one more here, which I think in some ways you've already covered, but remind us why if we can add more local or sustainably grown foods to our diets, that's beneficial. And there's two parts to that, local and sustainable. So take them in turn. Yeah, I think the idea of buying locally goes way beyond just the transport issue. I think sometimes people think, oh, it's about gas, which it is. But I'd say it's probably about 5% of greenhouse gases come from transportation of food. So it's not as huge of an impact as production. So I'm going to say that one more time. Production of food, food production, and what we are eating specifically large amounts of meat are what are producing most of the global greenhouse gases as opposed to the transportation. So while that's important, the idea of local food is threefold for me. Number one, you're supporting your local economy. You're supporting those local farmers. Uh, that creates community, which is healthy, which is healthy for the environment. And then number two, very often foods that are local are more native to that region. So perhaps you're eating foods that are meant to be grown in the area where you live, which means the, the environment is supported, the conditions are right, and that translates into health benefits. So when we're eating food that hasn't been transported long periods of time, or perhaps has not been grown in conditions where it is not meant to be grown, we get to enjoy the higher nutritional value of that food. So perhaps it's higher in, um, in certain nutrients or micronutrients um, because it hasn't traveled as far and because it's, it's coming from the place where it's meant to be grown. Now, I'll translate that into the second part, which is sustainably grown foods. We are seeing so much research come out on this, John. It's so exciting. And we're talking about um, the types of farming practices known as either agroecological practices. People often think of it as regenerative agriculture or regenerative farming practices or organic agriculture. This is really working in concert with nature. So we're not using as many of those synthetic fertilizers, which I mentioned contribute to greenhouse gases and also really deplete the soil. We are not using as many pesticides and herbicides, which once again, deplete the soil, have implications for pollution, groundwater pollution. And if we are consuming foods with pesticides on them or people who are exposed to pesticides, we know there are health implications there. And then number three, there are growing practices that are being utilized, composting, for instance, cover crops, so keeping the soil covered and connected to the inner workings of the soil, this thing called the rhizosphere, which is this connection uh, or this huge ecosystem of, of bacteria and fungi all chatting with each other and chatting with the trees and exchanging nutrients with the plants. When we consume foods that have come from farms that grow in this nature-friendly, ecologically-friendly way, 
those foods are not only supporting that environment, but they tend to be healthier. We're seeing higher levels of nutrient value in those plants. We're seeing higher levels, not just micronutrients, like things like vitamin C, and this, you know, this isn't across the board. This is, this is generally speaking, but we're seeing higher levels of something called phytochemicals. These are plant chemicals, good for you chemicals. This is not like, you know, Windex chemicals. These are the <laughs> chemicals that the plant produces naturally in response to adverse conditions, right? So when a plant is faced with a wild animal or a pest or um, really cold weather, it creates this wonderful defense system where it squirts out these phytochemicals, plant phytochemicals, which we in turn, that acts as its defense system. And when we in turn eat those plants, we have an opportunity to have uh, or consume those protective plant chemicals that we know have been shown to be very beneficial for reducing inflammation, protecting against all kinds of diseases and, uh, and keeping us vital. Um, Mary, I want to pivot here. Thank you for that. I want to pivot here and ask about your own background because you bring a, a level of joy and enthusiasm to this that was sorely lacking when I learned about nutrition. We spent a, like a total of two days on it in medical school, so over four years. So mm. there's, it's woefully mm -hmm. undertaught in uh, U.S. medical schools, um, but I think to some extent that's changing. How, how did you come into the field of, of becoming a dietitian? I would say, I mean, I was always interested in food as a kid. I was reading the New York Times, Jane Brody, I think it was when I was like 12. I was obsessed with broccoli and very <laughs> interested in living a really long life. And I thought, gosh, I have a feeling that the the key, the pathway to living to be 100, which is my goal, is through food and diet. And I was very, very intrigued by that and was eating, you know, lots and lots of these foods that I felt would be very beneficial. But I was actually in the theater so uh, I, I spent the first part of my career working as a as an actor in New York City, which is a racket for anybody out there who's who's trying to think about this kind of life. It's very difficult. And my dad got sick, uh, really sick, was in the hospital with um, a, like a septic um, condition called meningococcemia, and he wound up losing both of his um, his legs. And when I was in the hospital trying to help him recover, I felt like the dietary advice that we got for him in terms of his recovery was really poor. And I thought, gosh, I can't imagine that diet wouldn't have something to do with helping him to heal and making him strong again. And so when I began to consider that other people like me might be getting this advice from other people working in, in hospital, in, in wellness, in the health industry, for God's sake, uh, I thought, I got to stop this in its tracks. So I'm going to go back to school and do this thing, become a dietitian, which I didn't really know um, anything about, except that I figured, oh, it must be something to do with diet and transform my own life so that I can transform the, the lives of others and see food as a transformational experience, not just in terms of keeping us healthy and vital, but preventing disease, addressing disease, and then in some cases, even reversing disease. And now I see that same way of looking at food is not just medicine for the body, but medicine for our earth. We can make a difference in the sickness that is attacking our, our environment and our earth system by changing how we grow and produce food. I love the way you tie it together. And it's it's about individuals, but also populations and, and really about all of us collectively as our planet. And I, I sort of I feel like there isn't a lot of that sort of integrative thinking going on necessarily uh, in sort of the dietitian field per se. I mean, obviously, I think at a ground level, dietitians are definitely concerned with with individual 
patience, and and of course that that is very important. But I, I love the way you, you sort of integrate everything together. And I, not knowing you were an, an actor, you can hear some of the sort of cadences, energy, or qualities of that uh, in in the work you do. And you, if if any of our listeners go to your website and look at the videos, you can definitely see it there because there's some really funny stuff. But like educational and uh, entertaining for sure. Mary's podcast is the Good Clean Nutrition Podcast. If you want to hear more of her work, you can also look on her website, marypurdy.co. She is an integrative eco-dietitian, and she was our guest today on Studio Tulsa Medical Monday. Mary Purdy, thank you so much for joining us. John, thank you so much. It's always such a pleasure to be able to speak with someone, answer questions. I learned from you just by what you're asking, and I so hope it's been helpful for your audience. I really appreciate the opportunity. Mary Purdy is an eco-dietitian and host of the Good Clean Nutrition Podcast. You can learn more about her at her website, marypurdy.co. Well, that's our show for this Medical Monday. Studio Tulsa is produced and edited by Scott Gregory. The views of our guests are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of KWGS or the University of Tulsa. For Studio Tulsa, I'm John Schumann with Medical Monday. Thanks for listening, and please stay safe out there. <laughs>